Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Today, we have a special guest, um, somebody that I follow on social media, and also host of a podcast, Stephen Kimball, who hosts the Sober Dad Crew podcast. And um, Stephen, if you wanted to just jump in and kind of introduce yourself a little bit further, and then we can dive into the interview. Uh, sure. I'll give you, you know, the basic stats. So I'm 52 years old. I've been sober for, it'll be 14 years in February. And I can, you know, dig more sort of into that story as we go along um i got married for the second time in june so i have uh four kids in total ages 7 11 16 and 20 the older two being my biological kids but folks who listen to my podcast hear me say this all the time those kids are all just my kids i don't uh, differentiate between the two in my professional life, I run marketing and business development for an architecture firm that has three offices in New York State um, and have lived broadly in the Ithaca area since uh, 1998. Grew up in the great state of Maine, kind of lived some other places in between uh, coming here. But that's kind of the, the high level about me section. Okay. Well, there's a lot there and a lot of similarities like we just talked about in our um, pre-interview, which is like five minutes for those who want to look behind the curtain on this podcast. Um, uh, so, I, you know, you mentioned you're 14 years sober. Every Not everybody I interview on this uh, podcast ha- has uh, sobriety time. Some people are on here just talking about completely, you know, mental health related things. But when I do have somebody who has you know, recovery time, I do like to kind of find a little bit about how they grew up, where they grew up, and kind of what led you to the path of, you know, finding your substance of choice. Um, I think that there's, while I don't love the drunkologues, I think there is something interesting about maybe somebody finding a similarity in their upbringing to yours, right? Some through line. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a, a kid of the '70s and, the, and a teenager of the 1980s. So, you know, as a as a kid of the '70s, I remember my parents had the big jug wines in the fridge. Um, I think it was Colorado Chablis for my dad and Rosé from my mom. It was a very large thing of wine. Those, um, you know, I'm being a teen of the the '80s was the just say no Nancy Reagan era which is like a super non-productive approach to teaching people about (laughs) drugs and alcohol you know so i think that the era i grew up in you know family gatherings definitely alcohol was a centerpiece of those it was 
totally normalized. There was cocktail hours when we'd visit my grandparents or when folks visited us. My parents had, you know, wine pretty much every night or, you know, other drinks and things like that. It was really of the times. You know, I think my first drinks were probably eighth grade when I was sort of becoming this punk kid. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, in high school, I, I didn't drink, actually I got very interested in jazz and was playing jazz and sort of took the lesson of looking at people like Charlie Parker, who just went, you know, incredible talent, just destroyed. Um, and then in college, I really sort of, it was like beers hanging with friends in the pub. I went to college in Portland, Oregon at uh, Lewis and Clark College. It was sort of the the forefront of microbreweries a little bit. You know, we'd go and get a beer or two. We'd play cards. We'd hang out. I think the, you know, the the problem drinking for me really happened after my kids were born and I was really started struggling with depression. And it really became this kind of medicinal thing. I mean, I really have not been drunk a lot of times in my life, but it was this in the evening, one glass of wine became two glasses of wine, became three glasses of wine. And it was the thing that helped manage anxiety and depression, albeit terribly, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, really badly. And there was a night and I, you know, just started therapy. I'd gotten on an antidepressant and I remember just being at the dinner table and saying, I'm done. And I, I, I kind of felt like my grandmother was looking down on me a little bit and showing me the path ahead, which was going nowhere good. Mm -hmm. And I just stopped. Just cold turkey. Just I just stopped. I was done. And that was it. Okay. Um, you know, there were a lot of years of therapy along the way. Yeah. But that's, um, I, I personally didn't do a program. I don't do a program. Yeah. Um, but that was really... Uh, something told me you got to be done with this. It's, it's not going to work. You're not the person you want to be. You're certainly not the parent you want to be. And, and I just sort of walked away from it. Okay. That's interesting. At, at that point. Um, so you had started therapy, you had children. How old were your children at that point? <sighs> Let's see. So that was like pre-divorce. So they were, Maybe my youngest was three, mm -hmm. which would have made the older one seven. So she doesn't really remember too much, mm -hmm. you know, because she was so little. And I think the oldest one remembers some. Okay. Yeah. But I was never stumbling around. Okay. But I was certainly not patient, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and not probably always kind and not always probably a great partner. Okay. Okay. I got sober. My kids were um, two, one or two was my youngest at the time. And then my older one must have been about eight. It, I, my years could be off. It could have been seven and one. I don't. But, it gets blurry, doesn't it? It, it does as get we, blurry. As we get older. Yeah. Um, a little worrisome, but I just ignore <laughs> that. But right, you try and figure out like time. Yeah. At a certain point, it really blends together. Yeah. My older son will tell me sometimes now that he remembers, you know, bits and pieces and and my i was probably towards the end of my drinking was pretty bad off um but i think that the 
the idea that you were in therapy beforehand and then on this you know you you saw that you were using it as a a tool and and as you said not a great tool right like anxiety and depression and alcohol just are like you're you're like pouring gas on on those two things right that yeah, is it's a bad mashup yeah it really is and you think it's a good mashup at the time that's the thing yeah um, until it's not yeah yeah so many people use it as a tool um but the fact that you realize that and then continued on in therapy i think is is huge that's something that i recommend to people all the time when i work with them um is therapy like i think individual therapy goes so so far if you can afford it if you can find the right practitioner that that might take some time too right like for me it's been a couple of them throughout my life um but when you find the right one to, to help you with that it's huge yeah and it, it is hard so my wife is a social worker and a therapist and also teaches um social work at the higher ed level but you know she sort of always says i'm not going to take another client and then she just does because there's such a need there is you know she'll just not worry about insurance for some people and you know the the not to go down the rabbit hole of like the American healthcare system, which is terrible in general, but specifically terrible when it comes to mental health, mm -hmm. right? You have limited visits. Therapists are sort of need to come up with these dire diagnoses of you to sort of convince the insurance companies you need it. Um, and certainly, you know, for younger people finding therapists for adolescents is is even harder than adults it's just it's really difficult and then you got to find one that's a good match right right that's the other side of it when you've been on a waiting list you kind of are going to take what you can get but you really do need someone and i needed someone who's going to call me on my shit yeah i would go in and try and joke around she'd be like nah <laughs> not no not I, I i see your defense mechanism and i'm calling you on it yeah. um I needed that. Yeah, it's important. The The one that helped me find my path in sobriety was actually our couples therapist. And so my wife and I were going to her, you know, jointly. Um, and, you know, looking back, alcohol was a huge problem in that whole mix, right? But like, I was always trying to find some other R rationale for the problem yeah, um, can't be me yeah, no way <laughs> yeah it's not me um and then we kind of you know found our groove a little bit and then you know we split our sessions and we would go individually and and that's kind of when i couldn't deny the alcohol problem at some point right like i it, i kept trying and she kind of kept always circling back to it so i think it planted that seed um for me you know just those very truthful conversations um, I always say, if you don't, if you go to therapy and you're not truthful, uh, it's, it's kind of like going to the gym and like staring at the treadmill, right? right. Like you're not going to get in shape just looking at the thing. You got to get on there and use it. So try to be open and honest in those rooms. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the work of it, yeah. right? I mean, for me, the stopping drinking wasn't hard and I, and I, and I get that that's not true for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I respect that and, and honor that and feel grateful that that part of my journey was pretty smooth. But the work of it, because honestly, you're just going to find something to replace it with if you don't do the work. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You'll eat or you'll do, you know, whatever, right? It's like, yep. 
you know, as soon as I stopped drinking, I started eating candy and, you know, put on pounds and all that stuff. And you do, you kind of got to dive a little bit deeper and figure out what's going on. Um, and I still do that, you know, 11 years in, I'm still, and I'm sure you are too, right? I'm still like, I had a friend of me ask, like, are you ever recovered? And I'm like, no, I'm in recovery. I try to get a little bit better every day. Like, that's what I'm doing right now. Like, that's what I, that's what this means to me. Just a little bit better every day. Yeah. And that's funny. Cause I say that too. And I, you know, I say it at work and I say it at home, like every day I'm trying to be like a little bit of a better person. I'm trying to do my job a little better. Yeah. I'm trying to be a little better parent. I'm trying to be a little better spouse. Like, yeah. or, you know, my sort of joke is like, just don't be a dick <laughs> is like a good baseline for like the white man yeah. <laughs> It's like a starting point is really just like try to not be an asshole. That really is a great starting point. And so many people would, you know, benefit from that uh, philosophy, yeah. I think. There seem to be people missing that mark <laughs> yes. um, a lot, a lot lately. A lot, a lot. So you also mentioned that, you know, you started this journey and you were um, obviously you had your, your children were younger. You were you were married to your first wife. Um, what what? You know, how did that all go? Uh, obviously, there was a change in, in your life at some point. Was that a, you know, did that fall out of therapy? Was that just some, and sorry if that's like a big question. <laughs> no, it's not a big question. You know, I was trying to honor these questions where there's like someone in that story that's not here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, to represent. Yeah. But I think that, you know, we tried. We yeah. did couples therapy. We worked on it. Uh, you know, in the end, we it was a really a mutual decision. Mm -hmm. um, what we did do well is we just always put the kids first. Like she and her new partner and their four year old were at my wedding. That's awesome, right? Like we'll all do Thanksgiving, we do birthdays. Like kids first every time, which is what I say to anyone who's split up. Mm -hmm. It wasn't super hard for us, and I get that it's harder for other people, but. I believe like kids don't choose to have their parents split up right. maybe one or two along the way. Some small percentage are like grateful for that, but most do not want to see their kids or their parents split up. Um, you know, so it was a mutual decision. You know, my daughter, I think was kindergarten. No, she was in preschool and my son was probably in second or third grade. Okay. And, you know, then there was a lot of years of being, you know, we were excellent co-parents, but still a single parent. And this, and it's, that's hard. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, financially, Euro is on, you know, there's not another adult in the house to like, if you need to tap out, you had a hard day, you need a few minutes. It's no, you're still making dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't, I, you know, I can relate as the child in the divorce scenario but um i can tell you the couple times that my wife has to like go out and work and she's gone for two days in a row it's like wow i definitely know i need a partner if she's like down and out like sick it's like yeah just those times i freak out so i can't imagine doing it for any extended period of time yeah and i sort of really appreciate that now being repartnered yeah and also just how much easier it is to be a, a present parent when you know your partner in crime 
yeah, is with you. And it's still hard, even with two, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's the hardest job. I I will say that it's like to, I, I think I read it somewhere like being a good parent is the hardest job, right? It's it's just tricky. It's, good thing it pays so well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've we've worked that cost out. I forget what it is, but every time my oh older, don't do it. Every time my older son tries to parent the younger one, I'm like, have you paid your parenting fee for the day? <laughs> yeah, because it's like a million dollars. It is not great. Um, yeah, there's a big buy-in for a day of parenting. Um, so if you're going to do it as the older sibling, do it early in the morning and get your, your money's worth. Yeah. Or let them parent us, you know, for a day and I'll just ask for new sneakers yeah, all day long. All day long. I had the really expensive ones. I had it yesterday. I took my, my youngest to get his ear pierced and he went across to the, the sneaker store and was trying to convince me to buy him a new pair of Air Jordans. Like, You're like, not, no, I just put a hole in your head. Yeah. yeah it's not happening. <laughs> I'm glad we all have the same challenges. It's, yeah, it's good to know that. Um, yeah, it's it. My oldest is a sneakerhead, yeah. so parenting a sneakerhead kid is it's real, man. And being the parent that's also a sneak, like I'm a sneakerhead, and then my older son is, and my like I've created monsters. I didn't mean to; it just sort of happened. Yeah, we have a lot of like shoes. Yeah. We're talking about putting an addition on. We're like, how big does the closet need to be? Yeah. For all our like clothes and shoes, and then I have like tons of records. So I, I I'm I'm like totally. I think actually collecting things and loving things is a great. Mm-hmm. You need things that you care about, and, and that you're interested in, right? It gets you out of your head. Yeah. Um, and that does connect to like sobriety. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I I'm think gonna go buy some more shoes. Yeah, I think having those interests is important, and. And then like understanding that there's something outside of, uh, you know, drinking and and the partying and, you know, I always say like focus on other things. If it's shoe collecting and you go to, you know, these sneaker conventions and that's your jam, cool, right? And it can be your jam for a year and then you're on to something else. But like fill your life up is is the important thing. Um, I just wanted to step back. You had mentioned Maine. So when did you live in Maine? Because Maine is my favorite place on the planet. So I grew up in Falmouth, Maine, which is right outside of Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's not as small a place as it was. Like I had 65 people in my high school class, so a small town. And I I was born there and lived there until 1990 when I went to the West Coast okay. for college. And my, my mom grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so, you know, I had family out there. And my folks are still there. They're still in my hometown in a retirement place. So, you know, we, you know, my mom's got Alzheimer's, so that's just really rough. So we're, you know, we were there this summer and we're looking at, you know, a winter trip. Okay. To, to Maine. To Maine. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's one of my favorite places. It was a hard couple of weeks watching, um, that shooting yeah. from afar. And I mean, all those are terrible, but some of them, like, I, I know those, ta- like, I know those towns, you yeah. know? No, I know. We, same here. I mean, we've been going up there for 20 some odd years as visitors and we're there multiple times a year. We have family, um, we have family in Saco, we have family yep. in Yarmouth and, um, you know, friends in, in, and actually a little bit further West too, but they're all over and and that shooting definitely my wife 
was very affected by it, right? Because she's like, that was our safe place. Like, that's where we went yeah. to get away from all this. And and then it was there. Um, yeah, that one and, hit And a real, a real failure of mental health care. Yes. yes. Right? As the story evolved, right, it was just a clear failure. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And shout out to Portland, Maine, which is a fucking great city. It is. It is. And they have a lot of services in Portland. They do try, I think, very hard in Portland to, to deal with things. Um, you know, I've, I've, we've been watching it grow and it's a real like foodie destination now. Right. And there's a lot of cool stuff, but it's, it's grown in a very, I'd say controlled way, you know, and they've kept the services going. Yeah. And it, you know, it's funny to go home a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, and tromp around Portland, whereas this punk kid, I mean, there's this vintage store material objects that is still open. And I remember when it opened and it was like in this funk apartment in the old port and the same woman owns it. So I just, I always go there because it's one of the things that's sort of still open mm -hmm. from when, you know, I was a kid. So it's definitely changed a lot, but I think the heart of that city is still there. Yeah. I like the food. We go for the food. I go eat donuts. I get holy coffee. donuts. Holy holy donuts the best. So good. So I mean, good. seriously, I like donuts and I've gone to a lot of donut places. Holy donut, really the potato donut, everybody. It's it's on a different level. I mean, we've yeah. tried all the other ones that people say are good there, and I just can't wrap my head around another one. So and coffee, great coffee spots in Portland. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a food experience for us. And that's kind of what I do for every week in Thanksgiving time. I just go eat my way around Maine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not a bad thing to do. And, you know, seafood's just so good and so fresh. It is. It is. Um, yeah, so now you are uh, in a new relationship. You have, like you said, an extended family. You are living for 14 years without alcohol um, in your life, how are you managing the day-to-day? -day? Like, is it through therapy? Have you started to do other things? Like, what are some of the tools that you're using on a, on a consistent basis to keep yourself going? And I, I, from, from what it sounds like, it's not so much staying away from, you know, alcohol. It's, it's keeping that mental sort of stability. Yeah. And I, I think a number of things. I think there is a, a point along the way where I had this sort of epiphany and I'd been sort of defining myself as someone with depression in my head and having alcohol use disorder and all these things. And then I realized, oh, I need to start defining myself by my by the other side of it. Like what are my successes and what do I want to be and do? And I think that reframing was really valuable for me. Um, I, I don't do therapy now. I, at a certain point, I didn't need the antidepressant anymore. I think, and I don't do this enough. Meditation is a great tool. You know, I try and uh, every afternoon at work, I take, a, I take a walk. You know, it's like, good for just my general physical health and mental health. And it's a good, you know, tool for me to then be refreshed to 
to get through my afternoon at work. I have a pretty like stressful job with a lot of deadlines all the time. So it's, you know, that can really stack up. But I, you know, I think the biggest thing I try and do, and I, my grandmother always talked about being greatly blessed and which I have tattooed on my body. And it's about being grateful for what you have and waking up with gratitude and trying to carry gratitude through your day. That to me is a huge tool. Um, I think being a dad is so fundamental to who I am that that process also helps kind of keep me even keeled, even though sometimes it's definitely hard. And, you know, we've, you know, we've done this family blending thing, which is generally, I think, gone well. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. And, you know, we always talk about being intentional and trying to live with intention. And I think that also, you know, is important in my, in my day to day. It's, it's been long enough and I dug into that work that I've, it's not that it's just like a piece of cake all the time, but I figured out along the way, you know, what to do when I'm feeling stressed or sometimes my wife will just send me downstairs to listen to records. Okay. She's like, you like, you need to go downstairs now and just put your records on and chill out. So, you know, having somebody also that, you know, has your back and having a relationship of real, you know, love and honesty is also just generally supportive, which is different than trying to get someone to fill your gaps, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not a healthy relationship, but meeting somebody where you're both at a solid baseline and then together you become greater is what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's true. That's hard. I mean, I think sometimes people do try to fill gaps and, you know, um, I think my wife and I both came out of maybe households where we didn't see good role modeling either. So like we came together at a young age, probably didn't do the relation to the thing right and learn how to like be in a relationship well into our marriage. Right. And then people would look at us and say, like, hey, you guys got it all together. And it's like, yeah, this didn't just happen. Like, this was like a lot of work. Like, there was, yeah. you know, there was a lot of things that happened prior to this and, you know, and continue to be work. Um, you know, we work at that. It's not just like a, we wake up and everything's great. Um, but it, and sometimes we screw it up. You know, sometimes we do fill those gaps still and we do, default to bad behaviors and and those things but again to get better the next day or you know during this day is the goal and it you know it shows also why apologizing matters right and just being honest and i think that's right what therapy or people who do the program talk about yeah is honesty owning your own shit in a situation and being like yeah like that wasn't that wasn't cool. I'm sorry. Like I had a hard day, but that's not your fault. And I shouldn't have brought that home. And I was kind of being a jerk and I apologize. And then don't repeat. Yes. Yeah. Try to try <laughs> that's to leave the that other side by. of the apology is do not repeat. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's like we say to our kids, don't tell me you're sorry. Show me you're sorry. 
right? Like that is the statement because you can tell yeah. me you're sorry all the time, but if you do it again, you weren't really sorry. Like right, and, and it's not a get out of jail free card. But I said I was sorry. Yeah, but you did the last seven times. Yeah. So now it's not. You don't. You don't get to just break free. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard one. Um, but you have a good base then. So like you're out there walking, which is physical, you're expressing gratitude, you know, so you have a lot of things that are just great tools. Um, do you surround yourself with a community? Like for me, community is a huge part of what I do. And I find that in different ways, um, through the kids a lot, right? Like other parents, sports, all that stuff. Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, family is definitely tight, you know, um, my folks aren't close and that's hard, but my, you know, my in-laws are nearby. And so that's a big part of that world. Also friends, you know, I have, I wouldn't say I have a huge group of friends, but I have a small group of friends who would, you know, as Bourdain Brown would say, like help you dispose of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're not, not all of them are sober, but they're the kind of people that in both directions, if you get a text that says, I need to talk, you talk. And and that and and that just keeps you solid. Yeah, that that's what you need. You need close relationships, not um, multiple, I guess, or, or uh, like a tons of them, right? Like if you have a lot of acquaintances, it's not the same as that tight crew. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned work, and you you know you work in a stressful industry. Uh, you mentioned your you do work for an architecture firm. Uh, in transparency, I work for a construction management firm. We have, oh. Yeah, we, we hire our architects. So we're owner's rep. Um, a couple of my coworkers listen to this, so shout out to them. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we are, like you said, beholden to deadlines, right? There's there's big dollars on the table. Um, it's sort of this race to get the next job always. Yeah. And uh, it comes with a certain amount of stress. And, and those, sometimes there's like real crunch time. Like I'm in one right now and I have been for... I don't know, over a month, right? And it's just like nonstop. I haven't been able to look up. I haven't really been treating myself well. Um, do you find that sometimes you're like, is this is this sustainable? Because like that is how I yeah. feel sometimes. <laughs> you know, we're we're kind of in that now too. Yeah. You know, I, so much of my job is responding to requests for proposals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's usually a series of two-week turnarounds. And it, it's hard and it's stressful. And, you know, you really got to be organized and you got to wrangle the cats of, of, you know, people who are going to give you the information for these or develop the fees. So it, it's definitely stressful. I mean, I think one thing I learned along the way, and I do credit sobriety and therapy for this, is learning how to say no. Mm. Or, you know, at least pump the brakes at work, which, you know, Stephen of of a younger version of me or a less centered and mentally healthy version of me um, would not have done. But, you know, I have a phrase I'll say to people, you know, the physics of time is real. And you can't do everything. And if you try and cram more things in, something's going to suffer. Yeah. You know, like last year at this time, my one staff member was on paternity leave and it was really hard 
you know, and some things fell through the cracks, which is not what happens, but it was just me trying to do two people's jobs for months. And it was really hard. Um, yeah. So there's times when you're like, damn, like, I just want to go like make coffee for people. Yeah. I say that all the time. Either so be- that's probably sometimes stressful too. Cause the grass isn't always greener, but it's different, right? It's a different yeah. type of stress. And I think we all have job stress. Um, like, I don't think, you know, I'm sure there's some jobs that are not stressful. Like, but yeah, the, sometimes particularly like we get into these sort of crunch moments in our industry that are just very like, you know, there's no time to think, you know, the turnaround yeah. could be, people could reach out and say like, hey, I need a proposal in two days. Right. And and like you're scrambling and it's a legit proposal that has legit dollars on the back end and somebody wants those dollars. And right. That that pressure and is people's like so, jobs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think about that. We're a firm of 40. Yeah. The work I do is keeping people employed. Mm-hmm. Right. Like winning, winning the work is keeping people employed. And I take that very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And then keeping the work, too. Right. So like. Not only do you have to win it, but we have to make sure that we put out a product that is, you know, known as a good product, that the reputation stays, that like, it's just, it is a lot. I mean, again, I'm sure it's the same thing at a restaurant, right? Like if one yep. meal's bad and you get one bad Yelp review, it's it's over, right? Like, <laughs> I'm sure that, they, you know, every night at a restaurant is completely uh, crazy and, and stressful and all of these jobs have things but the, to your idea of saying no i think is important and so many people are afraid to say no at work i am still right and i'm pretty secure in my in my profession and i'm sure you are too but i still have that fear like if i say no what could happen yeah and it's certainly gotten easier being remarried i mean doing that when i was the only income I, I had a real fear of just getting canned. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, the ironic thing is I think I didn't, I, I did worse work because I was part of my brain was caught up in hyper focusing on that and worrying about mistakes, which actually makes you make more mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, knowing that there's sort of two incomes also, is a real blessing that we know if one of us were to not be able to work, it wouldn't be easy, but we wouldn't be freaking out. Yeah. 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 Professional boundaries. That's what they are. And, you know, I have a good leader and she's very much into professional boundaries. So I'll like, let her know when I threw one up and she'll kind of applaud me, but I'm still bad at those. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a people pleaser thing. What's your workplace, like alcohol culture like there? Yeah, so that's a rough one. Um, I had a real huge win, and I, I'll just tell you what happened. We had a uh, an open house at our office, and I said, I need you to go out. And, and again, I'm at a different place in my career, right? Like I'm a little higher up, so I can say things like this. I was like, I need you all to go out and make sure that we're stocked with like N.A. beverages, right? So have N.A. beer, have hop water. I don't want just like, bottles of water as my only option yeah um but like our industry is ripe with it it's like every happy hour is you know full on at a bar there's no other real networking events um everything is we're going to this bar we're going to that bar we're going golfing and we're drinking right and 
at this point, I'm very clear with everybody. Like, I don't drink. So I'll go with you, and I'm going to tap out when it gets weird. Um, you know, our office, we don't do many events in office like that. Um, but architecture firms do, like, tend to have a lot of drinking in them, too. Like, we shared an office with an architecture firm, and they had the beer fridge. And, you know, like, it's just kind of wrapped up in, like, certain job cultures, um, and then the construction industry itself, right? Like if I go out with tradespeople, they're going out and they're hitting it hard. I mean, that's just the reality of like that industry too. Right. So, or client, you know, entertaining clients or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like going to that dinner and everybody's ordering the fancy bottle of wine, right? Like on the back end, what I do is order a good dessert. Um, yeah. That's just kind of how I roll. Like it's, yep. it's been a challenge, um, but I own it. I don't hide it anymore. Um, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm now I am open about it. I've definitely had experiences in different places um, at a different architecture firm that worked in some different, you know, worked in more the K-12 world. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely like a lot of whining and dining with that. And I definitely, there are some high up people at that company that, they thought it was weird that I didn't drink, and I think it it, it created stress and limitations for me there, which mm. was one of the reasons I, I left. And I don't know if that's their own – they didn't like the mirror that I represented by not drinking or what it was, but um, it was really, really alcohol-centered, and I and I didn't like it. So where I am now is, is not so much, but I, like you – always want to make sure that there's options and interesting options, right? Yeah. There's so many interesting things out there to have now. That's not like Sprite or a bottle of water. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love hot water. It's my big go-to drink and there's a couple different brands of it. I just like bitter flavors. So mm -hmm. um, for me, it was a huge thing. And um, so I had them buy them, right? Like that would not be a thing two, three years ago at an office right. party. Um, I'm not like a big NA beer person, but I made sure that we had them and walking around that, that event, I saw people drinking NA beer. So like, cause they're all going to be driving home. Yeah. Yeah. People need other options. And I think it's a safe option to be honest. I don't love the idea of drinking at work in general. Um, yeah. I just kind of find it weird. Like I have a, there's a firm down here, um, it's like a smaller competitor of ours and they have like a bar in their office, like a full bar. And it's, yeah. it always struck me as odd of like, why would you have that? Right. Like I wouldn't wear a speedo to work. Right. Right. Yeah. So why would I have a bunch of drinks, which is maybe like a weird comparison, but I was trying to think of a good comparison, but it did to me does not seem like a healthy workplace culture to have a bar, but you know, a lot of the tech companies and all that stuff, a lot of them have that stuff. Yeah. And we used to, sm I mean, people used to smoke in offices, right? And that doesn't right. happen anymore. And maybe down the road, this will come about, right? Where we're saying like, this isn't a good idea. And I think, again, I have a lot of faith in the younger kids, like kids like that are 18 years old right now. I, like my older son, like I have a lot of faith in that generation that they're just going to fix some of this stuff. Um, cause they just don't do it. Like, yeah, they, they have, yeah, we have, you know, younger staff and interns and they definitely have a different view of, of alcohol. And that's one reason as like an old dude in the office, I've also pushed to make sure 
because not everybody like recognizes generational shifts yeah in offices and some people who've been in in, in like construction architecture are pretty like regimented fields so people want things the way they they had the experience and it, it, but the world has shifted it has it has and people i think have a hard time to your point recognizing that um i i am vocal about it and i think the more people that are vocal about it the better we become so i'm glad that you're you're out there beating the yeah. same drum um you've mentioned music a couple times and records and stuff and i Again, I, I was on your Instagram. I saw a couple of things on there and I saw some of your records and the, the bands and, you know, you had Run the Jewels and, you know, Bon Iver and a bunch of great bands that I love too. Um, I don't find many people that kind of go from Run the Jewels to, you know, Justin Vernon. So how did your musical tastes kind of pop? You know, it's, it's fun. So, you know, I grew up in like what I would call the NPR house. You know, a lot of classical music playing all the time. But my parents, you know, being of the generation they were, and my parents are sort of funny. They got married in 1963. My dad was in the Air Force. So they were like a little too old to be hippies, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but there's this sort of core of records in that house outside of that. My mom had a bunch of Dave Brubick records on the jazz side. There's some Beatles records. There's some uh, Simon and Garfunkel stuff. So that kind of always circulated with me. And it's funny. I was thinking about this recently because I, my wife is at a conference. And so I watched the David Letterman U2 documentary yeah. thing. And I, you know, U2 is not really a band I listen too much anymore, but I remember being in middle school and on TV was there that concert at Red Rocks under a blood red sky. And I was like, what is this? And that led me to the clash. And that just kind of opened everything up after that, you know, and I, in that time, like other stuff coming out, it was like Purple Rain came out then. Like some incredible stuff came out that really set the stage and David Bowie. Um, so those things sort of became this fundamental groundwork of like listening broadly. Mm -hmm. Like I still listen to a pretty broadly. So I've got like jazz and classical in my, my mix here. I've just always been interested in finding something new. You know, I think my criteria is basically like I, it needs to move me in some way. Um, you know, the political side of things like Run the Jewels really is important to me, too, as someone that, you know, trends way to the way to the left. Mm -hmm. um, so some of that music and I think, you know, the clash is pretty formative for me in that being this young punk kid and actually helped me kind of focus on not just like rebelling randomly, but actually being critical in a thoughtful way of what wasn't working and trying to be solution based around that, which is like a really long answer to music. Um, but that's just set this groundwork for just kind of open listening. And so, oh, I, yeah, I listen to tons of different stuff. I love it because like, 
I think it's great that you're open and still open to finding new music, right? Because a lot of people get set and they're like, you could have easily said like, I like Purple Rain. And you were just like, that's it, right? That was your going right. to be your identity from that point on, right? Like you loved Prince and like maybe you would have picked one or two other bands up throughout, but you didn't. You went and you just kept going. And, you know, I've done similar and we continue to find new bands. And now I listen to stuff that my kids listen to. And I, I do try to listen to all the, you know, mumble rappers that the younger one will listen to or whatever he's listening and now my older son likes folk music and I listen to all his stuff and, you know, his his taste probably aligned better with mine. Um, but like we can all agree on like, you know, Jay-Z is great or, right. you know, something like that, right? Like it, like there's a common ground that we can find too in our tastes. Um, and for me and my wife, like music was a huge part of and it still remains a huge part of who we are, right? We try to get to one live show a, a month um you know it's it's hard but we try to do it and uh, yeah you know and we're trying to get the kids to experience that as well um because it is such a great art form yeah we met we actually met during covid of all things and so one of the things that we did was build it's like the weird modern version of a mixtape mm -hmm. because you don't do that anymore uh, but we, you know, set up a Spotify playlist that we both put stuff on that we loved. And so that was like one of the things we did, you know, and being, you know, meeting in a pandemic and then also both having kids and schedules and all that back to, you know, intentionality. But having that playlist that you could listen to, like really was a pretty formative piece of our relationship. Yeah, I can imagine. So, um you know, you can tell a lot by what music somebody listens to, right? Like, there's certain music that I just can't, like, grab onto. And and then I'll see the people that listen to that music. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably not my... They're not going to be my friend, right? Like, I could just kind of yeah. tell. Like, we're not going to have a common ground. Like, we can't meet. Um, and I'm sure people think that way about me, too, right? Like, if, if I'm driving down the street and I got, you know, Wu-Tang Clang on, like, my neighbors don't love it. Right. Like they look at me and they're like, and, and I am like a, I am a, a square peg in a round hole where I live. Like I don't fit in and, um, I don't know how Ithaca is, but I live in a pretty non liberal area. Um, and it's just tough. It's a tough area for me. And, you know, it's my musical tastes and how I dress. And, you know, if I wear my Bernie Sanders shirt out, somebody's not going to love me. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, yeah, I don't live in Ithaca now. I, you know, I, I live in a, in a much more rural kind of conservative place. And so it's interesting to try and like, I don't, I similarly, I don't necessarily fit in, but I also try and be part of the community, oh, yeah. you know, and talk, talk to folks. And I've said on my podcast a lot, you know, people got to talk more, whether you agree or not, right. You got to talk. The sports field's a great place for that because mm -hmm. you're all there to watch your kids. Yeah. But yeah. it's also tough when you feel like, yeah, you don't align with my values. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think people are pretty clear of who I am. Most of the time I wear rainbow Crocs. I, you know, I don't wear my, my work Timberlands out. You know, I could easily just kind of chameleon myself into the, the community, but I am very clear as to who I am. Um, 
and but and then I'm also vocal, right? And I and I volunteer, and people know that they can count on me in the community. And I think that that maybe to your point is the message. Like, yes, I might be different than you, but I am going to help you when you have a problem. Right. And I think that those are the communities that actually function the best, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We don't all have to agree, but we all have to at some level have each other's backs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will definitely support you and your child. Like if there's a problem on the soccer field, you know, because we are a community and if your tree falls down, I'm going to come over and help you move it and like all those things. Right. But you might not like the flag that my wife put outside of our house. Like, that, yeah. you know, like, and you might not invite me to the block party because of that. I'm okay with that. Right. But like, if the tree comes down in my yard, you're going to help me. And, and like, that's kind of this weird unspoken relationship that we have yeah. in our community right now. So it's a little weird, but um, I also don't know that I could like live in like Cambridge, Mass anymore either, though. Like, I think I, I there's like a certain community that I'd have to hit. Um, but that's just kind of where my head's at at the moment. Yeah, it's sort of funny, right? Because your home, your home is where you are, and not you know I've lived in upstate New York longer than I lived anywhere now. Yeah, right. You know, so it's home, and the Finger Lakes are beautiful. So there's a lot to be said for here. Yeah. Um, you know, as we said, I love Maine, you know, I think a piece of my heart still exists there. Um, but you also, I remember when I first split just thinking, Oh, I just, why am I here? I like got to get out of here. And I was like, Oh, wait, you got to reframe because your kids are here. Yeah. You know, I was like, my kids are here. This is where I live. Right. And I need to build my community here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it it's you, you kind of pick and choose who, you, you know, you surround yourself with and it becomes a very, you know, tight knit thing and you can build a community anywhere. Um, it just might take a little bit longer. Um, sure. I, I feel much more at home in Maine and Portland and, and those areas. Right. Like, I think that that's a little bit more my vibe. But, you know, I, I would survive the same in the South, I imagine, if, if I yeah. had to, you know. Um, you can find your folks. Yeah, there's cool people everywhere. There's cool people everywhere. Um, so I know we're coming up on time. You you love music. I did see that you interviewed the gentleman from Everclear. How did that happen? You know, I just asked. Really? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a generous community. Yeah. You know, most folks I have just asked have said yes i mean i think some of that might be his recovery program it took a while to it was probably two months of trying to get that to work Mm -hmm. um because he was on tour and you know he's a dad and busy and i try and do these things outside of my work day actually took it took a day off for that one i was like i'm just taking a paid day off because i can only get this during the day and, you know, and I'm very clear on my work lines, mm-hmm. you know, like what does and doesn't happen at work and personal doesn't happen there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. I, ju- I just asked. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that uh, their big hit, hit album hit when I was a freshman in college. So, like, their songs sort of stick out in that. Yeah. So I was in Portland then, too. Yeah. You know, so they, and I, you know, it's funny. I worked in a bookstore 
and the bookstore and her son was one of their tour managers at, at one point, but you would like see him around town, yeah, you know, as they were just sort of blowing up, um, huge, yeah, yeah, it definitely and it was a cool time to be in the Pacific Northwest too, because there's just a ton going on musically, yeah, yeah, that was a great Pacific Northwest time. <laughs> I mean, that was like all the music, the was time there, yeah. yeah. That was crazy. Um, the, you mentioned, uh, you know, the political activeness of the run, the Jules guy. Have you watched the Killer Mike uh, doc on Netflix, like his little show? I have, I have not. Okay, I don't know if it's still on there, but it was a very interesting show that he put forward. Um, he's just a very interesting he's, dude. He's super interesting, dude. You know, all the stuff he does around, you know, banking is really interesting to me mm-hmm. and creating, you know, fi- financial networks for folks who are traditionally disenfranchised. Like, it's pretty cool because it's like pragmatic work to help people. Yeah. And that's what kind of what the show is, revolves around to some extent. Like, he, he had one, I think, where he was trying to start a religion. Like, he, he definitely tries to do things very differently. And, yeah. Um, but I, I do love his idea. And he focuses very local, too. So, like, he knows that he's can, he can affect change locally. And that's where his focus is. Like, obviously, as a national presence. And, you know, he was big with Bernie and, and all that stuff. But he's, I, I really uh, like Killer Mike quite a bit. Um, do you watch a lot of other stuff? Is there like, is that another media outlet that you go or are you like strictly music? Or what are your other? No, I, I used to watch more when I was like single and my kids were older. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a sci-fi guy. So, you know, I definitely try and work my way through the various star Wars seasons and series. The watching just takes longer. Just life's busy. Um, so uh, my wife and I will watch some cooking shows like High on the Hog is a very cool one um, that traces the history of African-American cuisine back to Africa and and a lot of the foods that we eat today and where they came from, like macaroni and cheese and how that was invented. So that's cool. And we watch some of those. We, we you know, we like Queer Eye. Mm-hmm. So um, those are fun and they're kind of heartwarming. But yeah, more, you know, more listening and more reading is mm-hmm. probably, you know, how I roll. Well, you got the couple cooking shows. You got Queer yeah. Eye as a recommendation. We obviously know, I guess the other one I'll ask is, is there anything musically that you're just loving right now? So there's two. So one is the new Gaslight Anthem album. And I fucking love that band. We got to see them over the summer. So great. But now I've just discovered this new band to me slow pulp and they have an album out now called yard which is really super cool a little punkish a little americana ish kind of vibe um like with a little maybe like lucero kind of in in the mix it's it's really great okay and then podcasts you had mentioned you know, Dak Shepard, when we were talking, I think before we recorded, is there anything that you, you didn't take in that way that's helping you? Um, you know, there's this woman, Lori Rudiman, who started, she's got something called Punk Rock HR. And she's got a new sub-series called Corporate Drinker, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. And it explores alcohol um, in the workplace. Hmm. I like 
you know, it's not really a podcast, but I listen to it on Spotify, Fresh Air interviews, because she's just such an incredible interviewer as I try and sort of get better at what I do. Yeah. You know, that's definitely one. And she always just gets super cool and interesting people on there. I mean, just is willing to ask deep and hard questions. All right. Those are all pretty good. And then you mentioned you read. I, you know, that is something that I can't car. I try to carve out time and I'm really bad at it. Um, is there it's any- hard. Is there anything that you're reading that's like just blowing your mind? I think the book I read, I finished it maybe four months ago, that just blew me away was Chain Gang All-Stars. Okay. And the the premise of the book is it's a sort of near future thing. And the Chain Gang All-Stars are, it's a, it's a gladiator-based system in a prison, um, but in America. And the book is really brilliant and really ties in and even sort of footnotes current prison industrial complex kind of research. Mm. Um, so it, it feels very real and very plausible, but I finished that book and it had like melted my brain. It was incredible. And I just, it's yeah, it was one of the best things I'd read in a really long time. Okay. All right. Um, I try to give things every week. It it gets increasingly hard for me to tell people like something every week that I'm watching or listening yeah. to or reading. Um, we've been watching The Bear. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's uh, Yeah, I, I know what it is. So we've been watching it. It's a really stressful show for me <laughs> particularly. Um, I can take in maybe an episode a night. Um, and then last night it was, so I'm not talking about the show in general. Like mm-hmm. I'm talking about one specific episode that I'm recommending and you could almost watch this episode just and not watch the rest of the show. Right. It's like, it, it, it kind of stands alone as a piece of like really intense art and it's, um, called the seven fishes and it is just like, it, it's a little over an hour and it describes the chaos of like a a very dysfunctional family and I, I gotta tell you it was very hard to watch like I paused for a little bit I took a break like I, it was a really intense hour of television really well done um they had some guests come in so Sarah Paulson was on it John Mulvaney was on it um the dude that plays Saul, better call Saul. His name is escaping me. I forget. Yeah, but, I know who you're talking yeah. about, though. So, you know, they, it, and then they had the normal cast, and it was just a really well done hour of, and Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, too. Really well done hour of television. So, again, you don't have to even, I mean, it would help to know what's going on in the show, but mm-hmm. you can almost watch it as like a movie. Um, and, uh, but again, deals with like, uh, you know, alcoholism, like, head on for an hour and it's like it, it hits so realistic it, it's like if you lived in a household like that it's what it felt like yeah i mean and, and and it's like it's insane like how how true it was like i kept looking at my wife she was looking at me like we were you know and and this was more about like how 
I grew up a little bit and, you know, I don't want to tell her story, but like, you know, it felt very similar to like how I grew up at points in time. So that was a, that was a good show. So, um, again, watch with caution. Um, (laughs) and then music wise, you know, I got really nothing crazy to put out there. Um, I've been listening to a lot of a band called Goose, um, I probably mentioned on here, my brother manages musical acts. Um, Goose happens to be one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are on tour now in Europe. And they actually have a, a side project called Orobolo or Orobolo, depending on who says it. And uh, it is like their acoustic version. And I that's what I've been listening to a lot of. So, cool. Yeah. Um, they are touring over there last night. He just sent me a picture. They bumped into Noah Khan. Noah Khan was at their show with Mount Joy. So Mount Joy and Noah Khan were in the same area as Goose and they were all in the same building. So, you know, sometimes I get some interesting pictures from my brother. Like, send me pictures. Yeah, that's fun. Seems like Europe's still a place where you can kind of tour and make money touring. Uh, Yeah, I I mean... Or or not make money. I don't know. It's tough to be a touring musician now. Yeah, I think that, you know, and again, like, you know, my brother's doing really well for himself and i think he's you know found a real niche i i think most of their bands and, and i don't know the business model that well but i think you're either making it on like hitting big in a commercial right and having your your music licensed and then the other option is like the merch like how well you can sell your merch at these shows i think is the key um and they do a very good job of it right mm-hmm. like there's always a new poster there's a special shirt there's a special this like and then the music is sort of i think the touring revenue is hard because like yeah you have to pay so many people right like there's the lighting there's the it's a pretty intense show you know there's a lot going on um yeah interviewed dave hawes one of my earlier episodes i don't know if you know him at all it's kind of a folk punk and he's like yeah man i i run my touring thing like a deli you know it's a business yeah yeah it is i mean I like I said, every job's stressful. Like my brother yeah. basically just goes to concerts, but like it's a job, right? Like yeah, he's stressed, and he's he works more hours than I do. <laughs> right, and he's probably always away. Always away. I mean, he he's gotten better at it as he's you know gotten a little bit more stable footing, but he's away a lot. Um, like he has a house in Denver, and I don't know how much he's there. Um, you know right now he's in europe obviously he went on this tour because it's you know a a big thing Mm -hmm. um but you know he'll be away for weekends at a time you know at at festivals because they'll have multiple bands there or if they have a big event somewhere he comes in um you know it's there's stress around every job so um yeah but you know i i uh the last thing i always ask anybody is like just sort of like a parting sort of advice, you know, a short little statement that you think could help somebody who's either struggling or just finding their path in recovery. You know, and I th- it's sort of the gratitude piece, but it also is like, I firmly believe there's always light at the end of the tunnel. It, it might not be super bright, but if you, j- you just got to keep pushing forward, you just, it goes back every day a little better. You know, and there is a way through. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, 
but there's a way there is a way through and there's help out there like yeah. you can get help and there's community yeah i think that's that's a great a great message um well steven i appreciate the time again sober dad crew podcast um i'm guessing we can listen to it just about anywhere is any yep. platform it is but you know soberdadcrew.com is the website so it's all there um it's got that's got all my social media links but you know anywhere you listen to podcasts you can find it okay and i will make sure i link everything in the show notes um i really appreciate you taking time to be on the the podcast with me today uh, it's very similar folks um it was it was when i was looking through the social media i was like man it's like we're kind of the same hobbies and interests it's it was weird yeah if i still had my beard we'd even have like the same beard so a lot of gray <laughs> so sometimes i can't handle it anymore so i, shave I know it off, i but... that's what happens to me too i, I like kind of i never take it all the way off i like i trim it and then i start to grow it out and i'm like oh it's too gray <laughs> yeah i do that all the time it's hard it's hard it's a struggle yeah um well everybody thanks for listening if you could like subscribe do all those podcast things review it helps and uh we will talk to you next week